haven't played them in a little while, and they released a new album earlier this year, so I thought we'd open up Monster Kid Radio episode number 127 with the song Caught Dead. It's from the band Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. This is from their EP, Caught Dead. You can find out more about them over at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show this week. I'm excited because we have a movie that we're talking about this week on Monster Kid Radio that I had not sat down to watch in full prior to watching it to talk about on this show. And we've got a newcomer to the show, somebody who's never been on the show before, outside of the promo that you hear me play every once in a while. We've got Christopher Page from the podcast Orphaned Entertainment. He's joining me this week on Monster Kid Radio with returning guest Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to talk about the movie Destination Interspace from 1966 here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show this week. Now, you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over on our website, which is at monsterkidradio.net. From here, you can find links to every band that's appeared here on the show in the past, including Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. You can find links to our Flickr album, our YouTube channel, and our Live 365 radio station, as well as our contact information. We've got an email address of monsterkidradio at gmail.com and a voicemail line at 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-4795-657. Now, you can also find a link to our Facebook group where there's been a lot of conversation about the last episode that we did here on Monster Kid Radio, the Universal Unite episode, where I gave you my Monster Kid editorial talking about what I think about the upcoming Universal relaunch rebranding of a cohesive Universal monster movie universe. It's been a great conversation with everybody, and I appreciate all the back and forth and all the new ideas that have been brought up. Join us over at the Facebook group. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on Facebook or look for the Monster Kid Radio page because from there I'll post things including sneak peeks or announcements about what's coming up on future episodes of Monster Kid Radio. If you look at the episode image, the artwork of this particular episode, you're going to see that movie poster that I made up, the modified movie poster from the movie Destination Interspace. Well, typically I post those the weekend before the episode so you can kind of see what's coming here on the show. The conversation that we had with Christopher and Steve about Destination Inner Space was a good one, but it was also spoilery. So if you haven't seen the movie, just as a heads up, at one point in the conversation in this episode, Steve is going to talk about a plot synopsis that he had written up about the movie. At that point, we're going to spoil the film. So if you haven't seen the movie, heads up, go watch the movie. It's real easy to track down. It's available streaming, Amazon Prime, or you can get it on DVD pretty cheaply if you're worried about us ruining the ending of the film. Although we don't get too specific about what happens to whom. We just talk about it in vagary. So if you are concerned about being spoiled, just as a heads up, it's coming. Use Steve's cue as your warning. Now, before we get into that conversation about Destination Interspace with Christopher and Steve, I want to play a couple of movie trailers. I think they're going to be relevant to the conversation that we had about the film. So we'll be doing that and we'll get to that conversation. Part one of our talk about destination inner space right after this. The thing from another world. This is the spot where it was first seen. And these are the first people who saw the thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat mewing. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got to... Is it human or inhuman? Earthly 
or unearthly, baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. on Mars? For centuries we have wondered. Now for the first time, through the new photographic miracle of Cinemagic, you will see the wonders of this strange and terrifying world when you see the angry red planet. Join this daring crew, the first in the scientific race between nations to attempt to land on Mars. Nine, eight, seven, six, Five, four, three, two, one, fire! Blast off from Earth with courageous astronauts Gerald Moore, Nora Hayden, Les Tremaine, Jack Crucian. Travel thousands of miles through space to the unknown. Cinemagic is not being shown to you now, but this wild land comes alive in Cinemagic. You'll see buildings miles high in Cinemagic. Journey to the center of sudden terror in Cinemagic. Be trapped by the tentacles of man-devouring plants in Cinemagic. Feel the fire-hot breath of a 40-foot monster as it reaches for you in Cinemagic. Your eyes will see the wonders of a world no eyes in this world have ever seen before. I wonder, will we ever get back to Earth? I want to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio somebody who's been on the show before, and then welcome for the first time somebody who's never been on the show outside of a promo that I've played a couple of times. Let's start with the new guy. Christopher Page from Orphaned Entertainment, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Derek, thank you so much, and thank you for asking me to join you. I'm, I am excited to be here. And then, is he an old-timer now? How many times have you been on the show, Steve? <laughs> I am not entirely sure. At least two or three. Stephen D. Sullivan, how's it going? <laughs> it's going great. So we've got a movie that we're going to talk about, and I want to get to that, but I'm excited to have Christopher on the show. We've never had him on the show before, and I want people to know about what he's doing podcasting-wise. Like I said, I've been playing the podcast promo a couple of times here on the show, Orphaned Entertainment. What is it, Christopher? 
Yeah, absolutely. And Derek, thank you so much for playing that promo. It was so nice actually to listen to another podcast and hear our promo. So like, ah, we've had a lot of people come over to our Facebook page because of that promo. Really appreciate it. Orphan Entertainment is a podcast dedicated to exploring public domain media. We've been doing some uh, films and radio, although the idea of maybe even doing some of the public domain uh, books, you know, written material has come up. Oh, wow. That's a little bit more time intensive. (laughs) So I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But yeah, so, so, so far we are focusing on films and radio. And it is, yeah, everything is public domain. Uh, It has been orphaned. It has been left behind by whatever studio or producer once owned it. And so we kind of dig into this stuff. A lot of it, of course, is very old. We're looking at stuff from the early half of the 20th century in a lot of cases. But we do see some new stuff from the 70s and 80s that were just miscopyrighted or weren't renewed before the new uh, rules of the mouse took place in the halls of Congress. And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we we occasionally do have a few color movies that you can watch. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, my co-host, Lydia, and then uh, we have another co-host, Barry, who joins us as much as he can. We just have a great time watching these films and discussing them and kind of giving them a review and, and hopefully kind of making people aware that films existed before they were born. <laughs> <laughs> So the rules of the mouse, for those of you that didn't understand that cryptic reference, is that every time it looks like Mickey Mouse is going to come out of copyright and into the public domain, Disney does their little magic with Congress and magically extends the copyright to keep the mouse protected. Exactly. uh, DC also does that with Superman. If the copyright laws hadn't been changed, both Mickey and Superman would be in the public domain now, which would be awesome just saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. At some point, they're going to run out of pixie dust, though, right? At some point, they're just going to <laughs> Tinkerbell's well, going to run out, and they're not going to be able to keep changing the rules, right? Well, Derek, they don't have to worry about it because right now, I think as soon as you create something, it is yours for a hundred years. So they've got some time, I think. A little bit, not too much, actually. You know, 1930s. So it depends upon from where they're counting creation, I suppose. Exactly. So the whole trademark thing is is a whole different issue as well because some Superman cartoons I believe have fallen into public domain, but the character is trademarked. Right. So the Fleischer cartoons, are the Fleischer cartoons, which I have considered actually uh, watching and reviewing, but that one is that does fall in that gray area because yes, yeah, Superman himself is public domain, but the cartoons, which is what we would be reviewing, are public domain. So right. did I say that right? Anyway, you know what I meant. Sort of. I think <laughs> yeah. so. If you're using a trademark on a character or a property, as long as you enforce the trademark, you can keep that forever because you're doing trade on it and business, which DC has undoubtedly done with Superman and Mickey Mouse has undoubtedly done with the Mickey Mouse stuff. But specific instances, like when they converted Superman into cartoons for the first time, may not be covered anymore because they failed to meet the renewal stuff. So the Fleischer cartoons, which are awesome, by the way, they are the yes. some of the best cartoons ever done. Those fell into the public domain because of bankruptcy with a company or whatever was going on with that. But the character Superman is still trademarked, which is how you get Tarzan movies made by people that aren't Burroughs, because Tarzan was created in the public domain. It's long enough ago now it is definitely in the public domain for all but the very last of the Tarzan stories. However, Burroughs has been really vigilant about policing their Tarzan trademark. So if you try to use the name Tarzan on something, they'll say, that's our trademark, and we're suing you. 
And that, I'm good with that, actually. That's fine with me. I think that's cool. But this, we're going to copyright something forever thing, that annoys me. It's like 100 years from now, unless my kids and their kids and their kids have been protecting anything I created as a writer, I think the public should be able to use it. So anyway, I don't know how we got into this long talk about that, but it does explain <laughs> a little bit of what Christopher is doing, I think. It is a topic that I'm fascinated with, uh, you know, the idea of copyright and public domain and who owns what. It's just something that I'm really interested in. I have said in the past to my wife that if there was a way for me to go to law school just to learn the copyright side of stuff, I'd do it in a minute. But really? I don't think you can do Oh, I'm fascinated by it. I'm pretty sure you could actually take a couple of uh, intensive courses and learn about it without having to go through all that messy law school stuff. It just seems like an awful lot of work. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you didn't say you didn't want it to be an awful lot of work. <laughs> I didn't say it wouldn't be an awful lot of work. It would be an awful lot of work. But I'm pretty sure you don't have to go to law school to do it. No, it is interesting, though, to kind of track where movies end up. Christopher and I were talking off mic. You know, those Mill Creek sets and archive.org. There's so many movies out there, and not just monster right. movies, but there's so many movies out there that are in the public domain. And I love what you're doing, Christopher, with, with the show. Oh, I really appreciate it. And there is more than just monster movies, although Liddy and I have to make a concerted effort not to keep picking monster movies because we both are really big monster movie fans. <laughs> so we, occasionally we have to try to find some nice film noir or some you know crime drama or uh, mystery to try to throw in the mix. <laughs> wait, wait, are you saying that there are public domain films that are not monster movies? Believe really? it or not, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, and the interesting thing is with all this lead up, is that Destination Inner Space, the movie we're going to talk about, seems to fall somewhere in this gray area where it's not really clear whether it's no. public domain or still under copyright. Exactly. I can't find enough resources. That's, I mean, certainly there are some who believe it is public domain due to the fact yes. that they've got it on their websites or they've thrown it onto a disc that they've slapped their logo onto it. But... I can't find any confirmation of it being truly public domain. So, yeah, that, that's what brought it up, and that's why I, I saw this movie for the first time. I thought, oh, my God, this is so much fun. I'd love to talk about it on the podcast if it's public domain. But, I, yeah, I just can't find anything to confirm it. Right, and I, as the, the author who recently did a, a white zombie novelization, because white zombie is in the public domain, I'm fascinated by what other monster and horror movies might fall into that space that I might be able to do something with in the future. And this is a film I love, and I'd love to play with it. But if I do that, is Disney suddenly going to say, come down and say, oh, we own this. <laughs> we bought the company that bought the company that bought the company that put this out, and therefore it's ours. That's what I found in my research. I go to the, the, the copyright. You can go to the U.S. copyright websites, and you can plug in titles and everything. And it does come up that someone – but it's almost like every two years or something, there's another copyright where this falls under. But it falls under along with 2,000 other films. Which right, makes you and think then the question is whether they actually renewed the copyright when they had to renew it in order to keep it going. Exactly. Or did they just grab it so they could put it on their big box set, like a Mill Creek? Uh, I think Derek mentioned them. They're really they're notorious for the thousand movie collection or whatever sets. Is it just so they can throw it onto that, or did they actually renew it and do they own it? Just because you put out your version of a DVD with your logo in place of the original logo. That doesn't mean you necessarily own it, though it does mean you're trying to control that particular copy of it. Exactly. 
Right, and then there's the whole issue of the, you know, there's somebody who's put some extra material into the Plan 9 or the Night of the Living Dead or whatever, and then suddenly it's their movie versus, you know, a public domain movie, so you got to be careful with what you do. Yeah, it's not quite the Wild West, but it's certainly kind of a murky... Yeah, it's a very gray area. Yeah, yeah. very gray area. It is. The copyright website is not uh, very user-friendly. No, 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 it's, no, no, it's not. No. Come on, I'm sure that they designed that website in 1970 before there was actually a web. <laughs> With podcasters in mind, I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and had I, this just goes to the show, now you guys know and all your listeners know exactly how good of a planner I am. Had I realized how murky of a territory this was going to be, there would probably not be orphaned entertainment. Oh, no, don't say <laughs> that, man. <laughs> you're you're providing a real public service with what you do. That is yeah. oh, oh wow now now I'm I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, man, how have things been with you? It's been a little while since we've had you on the show. What's new in the world of Stephen D. Sullivan? Uh, things are really good. I've been insanely busy. I've got um, the Tournament of Death. We probably remember when I was working on that. That is coming down to the point where it's actually going to come out in print, and I'm going to deliver all the Kickstarter goodies sometime in the next couple of months. I finished up Daikaiju Attack. That is available as an ebook now, and it's also going to be available in print, uh, certainly before Halloween, but maybe also in the next month. Uh, we're getting toward Halloween, and last year I released a short story called uh, Daikaiju vs. Cthulhu, which was in the Cthulhu Haiku 2 collection, and I'll be breaking that out and probably releasing that in time for Halloween as well. And I just finished a story about uh, young monsters for a Korean educational learning company, uh, which is, if I'm lucky, that'll be a, a series of online books. So we'll see. There are more about that when the details are nailed down enough that uh, people can enjoy it with me. Well, that's fantastic, man. That's great. <laughs> yeah, busy, busy, busy. Right on. Well, definitely everybody needs to go to stephendsullivan.com. And, Christopher, your website for your podcast is? Uh, you can find us at orphaned-entertainment.jonja.net. But, yeah, that's where you can find us. And, of course, iTunes, that's super easy. And Stitcher Radio, we're there. So just Orphan Entertainment, do a search. You'll find us. This ship must have traveled through space millions of miles to get to this planet. on a fantastic underwater exploration, struggling to survive an invasion of monsters from another planet. (laughs) 
if listeners have looked at the cover art or have been following us on Facebook, the movie we're talking about, Destination Inner Space from 1966. This is one that Christopher wanted to do. Steve contacted me at least, at least a year ago yeah. to talk about this movie, and you know we finally made it happen. Wow, guys, this movie. Have you never seen it before, Derek? Before I'd never seen it start to finish. I'd send bits and pieces of it. So last night, sitting down to watch it streaming, first time. Cool. Loved it. It's worth noting that, I don't know if Christopher feels this way, but I've tried over the years to find really good prints of this, and the best ones are still kind of VHS-y quality. But I did, in this last week, watch it streaming on Amazon, and that is the best print that I have seen so far uh, available to the public. It's still not great, but it's a little bit of step up from Cheesy Flicks DVD, even though it's still Cheesy Flicks. For whatever reason, their streaming version has uh, less pixelation and less artifacts. It's not like really bad either way, and it's not like really good either way. But that, that is, if you're going to do one, that's the way to go, and it's free if you've got Prime. Yep, that's how I watched it, and it was it was it was a really nice looking copy. Of the colors are good; it's not washed out. You often find a lot of these transfers where, you know, it was you know a transfer of a, tra- a copy of a copy of a copy, and it finally got transferred and you know digitized. And this one actually looks really good for all intents and purposes. There, right? Yeah, it's not anywhere near real HD, so people shouldn't get the idea that they're going to be looking. That's something that that's a crisp, clean, looks like it was made yesterday copy. It looks like a a good VHS or old school copy. So it's it's probably about half or two thirds of the resolution you might get on a really DV, good DVD and and less than that of a Blu-ray. But it's still it's very watchable and the colors are beautiful, and the dialogue is clear and the <laughs> the score comes out really nicely too so no it's it is a decent copy i think you're both right i wish there was a more official something a little bit more cleaned up kind of release for this movie because i think it deserves it it's got some great underwater photography right i think the cinematography underneath and i think the the monster the beastie would look great in a nice cleaned up transfer of some sort but again to go back to what we were talking about before who owns the movie who really has the rights is there even a good copy of it out there anymore anymore it's hard to say in theory uh, looking on imdb it's supposed to be widescreen and i don't think i've ever seen it widescreen it's supposed to be one eight five one to one according to imdb and we're watching the the four three copy which is the old school tv copy now i saw some what looked like widescreen clips or um, screen caps from it, but the ones I saw looked like they may have just been matted rather than a a true widescreen, so I'm not totally sure whether it exists and whether, if it does exist, if it's just a matted copy of the 4.3 or if there's a true widescreen version. There were a couple of shots where I thought, okay, this has been chopped, this is a pan and scan, because there's a few scenes here and there with characters doing things on the extreme edges of the screen, which you get in a pan and scan where they're kind of chopped off a little bit. So. Right, where there's like half a person's head on the left or the right side of the frame. I've, right. I noticed that too. It doesn't have the telltale panning. So if they did well, it true. that way, they just took the center section of the picture. And that's where the action is pretty much always taking place. But like you said... There are a couple of times where you think, or at least I thought, I really doubt that someone composed this so this guy's head was, 
you know, just his uh, ear and his nose are in the frame. I, I think there might have been more there. And I'd like to see it. And I have, um, I have some small hope now that even though this might be a public domain film, that someone that owns a good print, the whatever Uber company this has fallen under, might release it if they know they have it, if they think there's a demand for it, because we all know and love The Screaming Skull as a wonderful public domain horror picture. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the Screaming Skull. Be sure to bring someone with you who can identify you when you see the Screaming Skull. Only this lost soul, half man, half ghost, knows the secret of the living dead's curse. The torturous agony that saturates these walls and makes the shutters creak with almost human pain. Terrorizing those who dare to love with the maddening, jealous shriek of the screaming skull. diabolic demon dares touch the screaming skull what ghoulish thoughts control this poor man's demented mind what does he know what secret horrifying and blood curdling is he hiding nothing is more terrifying than the spine chilling breath of a vampire woman ghostly ghastly as unreal as a will of the wisp as real as the skull Just this last year, MGM, that apparently owns the master print, put out a copy of it on one of their four movies for you sets. And it's beautiful. It's, it is the best The Screaming Skull has ever looked by far. So I'm hoping that even if this turns up in the MGM vaults or, or Universal or somewhere like that, even if it is out of public domain, that they might say, hey, we've got a great print of this. Let's put it out. I would love to see it. I would like to see This is one of those films, too, where I'd love to see a decent release with a little bit of additional features thrown in. There's very little that I can find. I mean, maybe, Steve, Derek, maybe you've had better luck, but I was kind of digging around online. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about this film. I was really looking for information about the you know, the, the creature design, uh, how they did the underwater photography. I didn't find anything. I looked around pretty extensively this week, too, for that kind of stuff online. It may be that it's all out there in print books somewhere. Well, my first exposure to the film was some pictures, or were some pictures, some stills from the film in one of those books. Now, of course, this past week I was not able to find which book I remember seeing it in. <laughs> but I had seen the picture of the monster going after our human characters, and, and it was in the back of one of the monster books that I have here. But like I said, I went through the bookshelves, and I couldn't figure, I couldn't re-find it. So I, I know that's where I first saw it was in one of these books. 
Right. The first time I saw a still from this was would have been in one of the monster magazines from the late 60s or early 70s. I think it was actually not Famous Monsters that I first saw it in. I think it was like For Monsters Only or Castle of Frankenstein or one of the Famous Monsters knockoffs <laughs> <laughs> that came out at the time. And it was like, oh, my God, look at this monster. It's awesome. Oh, it's a great-looking design. I love the monster design in this. See if you guys agree. Unlike um, something like Derek, your favorite creature, the Black Lagoon, where he was literally, you know, <laughs> the, he, he, you know, sucked on the air hose and swam across, the, you know, in front of the camera to the next diver with an air hose. This suit actually looks like probably a diver suit uh, was incorporated under the suit. Right. Right. Yeah. It's clearly got space for an air tank and someone that uh, knows what they're doing, which in this case, I think the guy's name was Ron Burke, under there as a diver working underwater with this suit on, which is kind of amazing. Now, I am a huge Rico Browning fan, and what he did was and shall always remain just astonishing. And as a kid, I never would have guessed how they did that because he didn't have air bubbles. But this... You know, the guy could clearly work a little longer with the air tank going and still fight these other humans with air tanks on under, underwater. And it's for what is clearly a, a low-budget picture, I think that was a really good decision they made. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the monster looks great. And it was designed by um, Richard Casarino, I think, who I don't know pretty much anything about, but I did discover... He's the same guy that designed the Hideous Sun Demon. Oh. And so that's like two good monster designs from this one guy that, as near as I could tell, did no other suit work, no other makeup work. But he designed two really, really good-looking monsters, at least in my opinion. A man who loved with fierce, demanding passion. who ran wild in a reign of terror that spread murder in his trail. The thing that went wrong in the secret atomic laboratory afflicted him with the most hideous curse ever visited on man, forcing him to cower in the darkness like a hunted animal. For one touch of the sun's bright rays transformed him into the reptilian Jekyll and Hyde monstrosity who couldn't control his lust to kill. I agree. Hideous Sun Demon... Excellent film, great monster design. One of those ones that I want to talk about on the show in the future. I didn't realize he had the connection to Destination Inner Space, so that's great. Right, yeah. It, it just turned up as I was probing around through the Internet this week, trying to find out who are these people. Because there's a lot of talk on the Internet, if you look about this movie, there's a lot of talk about how cheesy this film is. And it's in some ways they're right, but mostly I think they're really saying... This is very low budget, and we don't kind of buy the compromises they made in order to make this film at this kind of a budget. 
and I don't I don't think that's really fair because I really think that almost all the people that worked on this kind of really brought their A game to it. Certainly the actors are a really solid bunch of television and aging movie stars. And they're all doing good work. No, absolutely. I, I kind of took this film as being sort of a film with kind of straddles two ends of a spectrum and never quite meets in the middle, maybe, because I think there is definitely some cheese factor into this film. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I don't think you can argue that. But then there is some also some moments of some fantastic production value. The underwater photography is fantastic. It's some of the best I've seen. Uh, some of the miniature work is really good. Some of it not so good. Right. Uh, the the <laughs> yeah. actors, you're right, the actors do a fantastic job with what they're given, but some of the dialogue is, um, you know, if not I the greatest to, in the world. The one area that I, as a, especially as a writer, that I would pick on is the dialogue. Because while the, the basic premise of this story is kind of lifted from Howard Hawks' thing from another world, the dialogue, I don't know, there are just a couple of places where it's just... It's not Ed Wood crazy bad in an amusing way, but it's just, well, why the heck did she just say, I think I could love you? Because that really doesn't seem appropriate (laughs) given the character development stuff we've seen right now. Yeah, that kind of came out of the blue. (laughs) Okay, do we want to, do we want to like do a short synopsis of this film? Because I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people might not have seen the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think we're going to have to, or else people are going to start getting lost right. <laughs> from, from our discussion here. And since we no, just kind of jumped into the middle of it, they're probably they're probably already <laughs> lost. <laughs> so I've got a short synopsis. Do you want me to read it, Derek? Yeah, why not? I mean, okay. and then if Christopher and I have anything, we'll dive in. Navy Commander Wayne, which is played by uh, Scott Brady, is sent to an underwater sea lab to investigate a series of strange sonar contacts. There, he meets a group of dedicated scientists and divers, including Dr. Lassiter, Gary Merrill, head of the project, and biologist Rene Perron, Sherry North. Two other members of the team, photographer Sandra Wells, Wendy Wagner, and lead diver Hugh Maddox, Mike Rode, are out trying to photograph whatever's on the sonar. The pictures they bring back show an undersea flying saucer, unlike any submarine known on this planet. The saucer buzzes over the sea lab and then lands on the bottom near a deep ocean trench. Wayne, Wells, and Maddox swim out to investigate, though it is clear there's bad blood between Maddox and Wayne, who served together on the doomed submarine Starfish. Entering the saucer through a moon pool, the trio finds a strange capsule-like object, which they take back to Sea Lab. Before the scientists can determine what the thing is, the capsule increases in size, emits deadly ultrasonic waves, and then breaks open, setting loose an alien amphibian monster. Though a crewman is killed, Commander Wayne manages to trap the creature in the lab, but the monster breaks through a window, floods the compartment, and escapes into the ocean. From that point on, the creature plays a cat-and-mouse game with the crew, killing everyone on the topside support ship and cutting off the lab's communications and their flow of air. The crew sets a trap for the amphibian, wounds, and then captures it. After settling their differences and restoring the station's life support, Maddox and Wayne build a bomb to destroy the saucer. But as the two of them and Wells go to enact their plan, the amphibian escapes the lab, 
tracks them down for a final battle. In the end, the saucer is blown up, but only at the cost of one of the heroes' lives. The surviving lab members are sent to Washington to explain the strange alien danger they've all encountered. So there you go. A little spoilery, but not too bad. No, fantastic. That was a fantastic synopsis. It's like you're a writer or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might be I spent a little time on that the other day. <laughs> Right, so that's the synopsis. Some of the other people that I want to mention before we really get into it is directed by Francis D. Lyon, who also directed Cult of the Cobra uh, several years earlier, which is something that I really enjoy as well. Yeah, it's an excellent film. He did a number of other films and some television as well, but he didn't really play in the genre too much. But he was the director on that. Right. I'm a big music guy. You know, I love my film music. Paul Dunlap was the musician on this, and he did a lot of work for like AIP, did the music from The Angry Red Planet, did a number of genre projects as well as some non-genre stuff, did some Three Stooges things as well. Very prolific composer for a lot of these types of movies, and I loved that. So. Right, yeah. I was surprised when I looked him up just how many different monster movies, science fiction movies he had done. It's immediately obvious if you see this picture, if you're a, a film fan, that some of the music is lifted pretty directly from Angry Red Planet. And as I was watching it again recently, I was like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. But then I looked it up and I found out, oh, it's the same composer as Angry Red Planet. So <laughs> That's allowed. It's kind of an indication, even though people are like, well, that's cheesy because of the power of this other stuff. But the people working on this, they were pretty serious about what they're doing, well, except maybe for the author. <laughs> but the rest of them, the actors, the directors, clearly the, the people operating the cameras, the set guys, they didn't have a lot of money to work with, but they were all really taking this seriously and working hard on it. And as far as Destination in Their Space, I, that's one of the things that stood out to me is that the score is actually really good. The, the, the opening score is you, you're seeing the uh, the small ship, uh, the small boat, you know, skipping across the sea. It's a perfect fit. Taken for someone who's watched some films that the music really doesn't fit what's going on, and uh, this will be. <laughs> further plug of Warfare Entertainment, our next episode. Liddy and I go into it quite a lot, how the music that is chosen for our film this month does not fit what is going on in this movie whatsoever. It was really nice to see it in this one, where the score really matches the film really well. Not only does it match it, I feel like it, in some cases, elevates the movie, because it is a full adventure-type score in some spots. Some of the underwater photography, we love the underwater photography, but let's be honest, some of the miniature stuff doesn't look that great. But you put that music behind it, and it doesn't matter. Did you guys like how he took like a very ordinary score, but then would kind of throw in that odd alien noise into it? Did you guys notice that? That was a really nice touch. It just it made it very kind of grounded, but still made it sort of almost ethereal at the same time. It, it It was really neat both a traditional kind of heroic score and then a weird we're from outer space electronica score depending mm-hmm. on what's going on and they overlap a little and it's a really good job and i was surprised by how good it was and like i said is after i discovered this was the same guy that done had done the other score any objections i had to the score went away and i actually got to the point of thinking damn i wish i wish we had 
music of this guy on CD. I think there's like one of his scores is on CD from the people that do the the monster movie music, and it's not a monster movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a an action epic or something with a little monster movie music tucked down to the end. But I'd really love to have a a whole set of this guy's CDs because clearly he was bringing it. He was working hard on this stuff. It is good stuff. I think he did one of the teenage movies, Teenage Frankenstein, I think is where. And Teenage Werewolf. Did he do Teenage Werewolf as well? Because yeah. I love those films. And again, the music's gorgeous. I wish somebody like maybe Monstrous Music or whatever would be able to put together a release of some of his music. Some of these scores, some of these cues are amazing. You mentioned the author, the screenwriter, Arthur C. Pierce, which in a weird way, and this wasn't planned, wrote the movie that Christopher just covered, uh, not this past month, but the month before. He also wrote The Astral Factor. Oh, God, that's... Oh, that explains so much. I didn't even realize that. (laughs) I was going to mention that as one of his other credits, and just how terrible that film is. (laughs) I don't know. Christopher made it sound like it's a good movie that I need to see. I I wasn't aware you'd covered that, Christopher. I'll have to definitely make sure that my podcatcher gets that one so I can listen to it. That's one of those weird movies that it has become kind of my personal Don Quixote quest to have a really (laughs) good copy of it. Yeah, you're not going to find, you're going to have a hard time finding that one. As near as I can tell, there is one. (laughs) Yeah. And and apparently you have to be careful. There's actually more than one copy because there's the uh, astral factor and then there's the invisible strangler. strangler. Yeah, invisible strangler, yes. And there are actually two different cuts, including, I think, Invisible Strangler actually has additional footage added in that they film later or something, if I remember reading correctly. You could be right. I first encountered it as Invisible Strangler, and it was uh, when Suncoast was still around. It was one of those things I found in one of their cheap boxes. Like, oh, that sounds fun, Invisible Strangler. And I took it home, and I was like, this film seems like there's stuff missing from it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this that was another film where the the story itself and the the plot itself was a little silly and stupid, but there was some fantastic actors involved in it, and right. again did the best that they could with what they were given. And for that alone, I think it's worth watching. Is it Robert Foxworth in it? Yes. Right, and Stephanie Powers, right? <laughs> Stephanie Powers, Ilky Summers. Yeah, and a whole bunch of other other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't planned uh, that we we did it this way, but you know, I wanted to mention you listeners should really check out that episode of the Astral Factor on Orphan Entertainment. Uh, Arthur C. Pierce is also one of the uncredited directors on that film, and he did a couple of other movies that I have seen. But when I go back and think about things like the Navy versus the Night Monsters, which he was involved with, yeah, the dialogue in that doesn't necessarily sparkle either. Right, all of them. So, did a lot of genre stuff as a writer. It's, a, yeah. it's like 15 films, and they're all really pretty cheesy. You know, it's <laughs> Women of the Prehistoric Planet, Mutiny in Outer Space, The Human Duplicators, Beyond the Time Barrier, Invasion of the Animal People, in which he did, that's a, a film that was, a, I believe, a, a joint Swedish-U.S. film that was made under uh, under a different title, and then they recut it and added new dialogue for the U.S. version, which the original version is okay, but the U.S. version is almost incomprehensible. And you never <laughs> want to be credited as a writer on a version that's worse than the previous version of the film. You know, he's no longer with us, so I, I don't want to speak too, too ill of him, but clearly not a, a writing titan. But in this case, 
he was taking pieces of other really good stories and aside from the dialogue, combined them fairly successfully because we have the thing from another world. Doing the thing from another world underwater is a pretty cool concept just in and of itself. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. Yep. You add on top of that the melodrama between Wayne and Maddox, which is clearly lifted from some submarine movie. <laughs> like, you trapped me to die there, Commander Wayne, and I'll never forgive you. And the, he managed to combine all the elements in a pretty well. But then you get weird bits of dialogue where it's just, it's all kind of tin-eared as to what human beings really talk like. So the men give kind of these macho speeches, and the women kind of snipe at them, and yet they're supposed to be attracted to each other. So it it kind of doesn't work. Well, I think Christopher nailed it, though. You know, the, the scripting, some of the dialogue, a little rough, a little, little tin-eared, like you said, but... The actors, and I mean, see if you said it too, the actors, the performers in here are doing their best to elevate it and just really kind of working some magic in front of the screen. I loved watching Commander Wayne, Scott Brady as Commander Wayne. It's just the, uh, the perhaps aptly named Commander Wayne. Yes. Like Wayne for John Wayne, because that's the way he's playing it. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's a commanding performance. I mean, I, yeah, sure. I'll I'll follow you. Let's, whatever you want to do, Commander. Sure. I totally bought it. Right, yeah, he's he's really he's given a a really good performance, and he's you know we've seen him in a lot of TV stuff. I most memorably for me, in a number of episodes of The Rockford Files, playing different characters, but always kind of these hard nosed, difficult to deal with characters, sometimes criminals that Rockford would have to deal with. He was also the sheriff in Gremlins, which was his last film. Mm-hmm. He's a a fine actor, and if you look at his IMDb page, he has tons of credits. 140 credits on IMDb. A lot of it is TV, but then extending back into the kind of the golden age of movies. And he's, you know, he's not a young man doing this anymore, and there's a lot made on the internet about him having to really suck in his gut to buckle that wetsuit up. <laughs> I actually had that in my notes. It's like, could someone please show Commander Wayne how to adjust the strap? <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I never thought when he was moving in the wetsuit and, and working with it, I never thought, oh, he doesn't know how to do in a wetsuit. It was a little tight, and they could have probably adjusted it better. But it, he looked kind of at home in the wetsuit, even though all the guys in this film have really short shorts on with their wetsuits. They're actually right. shorter than the than the suit that Sherry North, the woman, is wearing, which is kind of <laughs> kind of interesting the way scuba worked back in those days. He looked to me like he knew his way around a scuba tank. He wasn't inept with it. Right, and that was something where I was... Or I was saying, I wish I could find more information about this film. Is I was really curious. Outside of Wendy Wagner, who I saw was uh, like a professional diver, and right. she was very experienced in scuba. I, I was curious about the other actors, whether they were the ones we were seeing in the water, or if these were stunt people. Because if it was stunt, they did a really great job of matching them. So I honestly think that it really looks like it is the actors that are in the water. I think so, too, and that's one of the things that I was looking at as I watched it this uh, this last week a couple of times. And I'm thinking I am almost entirely positive that it is Wendy Wagner doing her own scuba diving in this movie. Oh, that one I was sure about, but as far because, as Scott Brady... Because that would search stock and trade, even though you never get a good look at the faces of the people as they're diving. But part of me is thinking, well, I think that may be Scott Brady and Mike Rode mm-hmm. diving along with her. It would be cool if it was. 
but I couldn't find any reference to it. The only reason we were pretty sure it's Wendy Wagner doing it is because that was one of the things she did. She started out as a stunt woman doing scuba work in things like Sea Hunt. Right. And she clearly knows her way <laughs> around the swimming gear. And in fact, her character even has a line where she berates Mike Rhodes' character for not taking enough oxygen tanks along with him. Like, <laughs> well, if you'd taken enough oxygen tanks along, like I told you, we were going to chase that flying saucer more. <laughs> that might make sense, too, why the uh, Mike Rhodes and Scott Brady characters spend most of their time underwater in, to, in the little mini-sub, as maybe they had some experience with scuba, but maybe not as much as she did. And so it might make more sense for them to be in the mini-sub and then keep their swimming a little limited. But it, right, yeah, where she actually has the tiny sea scooter, which is right. a, uh, individual divers can use to increase their speed underwater. That makes perfect sense, and also the fact that every time they're launching the mini-submarine, there's another guy that's like <laughs> clearly a dive launcher. That yeah, who apparently just hangs out outside the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Even when the monster is outside, you never see this guy leave the airlock or enter the airlock. And, and when we say when I say airlock, it's actually a moon pool. And I mentioned right. that in the synopsis, and we should maybe explain that for people that don't know what a moon pool is. I thought I'd leave us kind of sort of hanging with that cliffhanger about what a moon pool is. Come back here in a couple of days at Monster Kid Radio to hear the continued conversation about Destination Interspace with me and Christopher and Steve. I want to thank Christopher and Steve for spending the time with me to talk about this movie and for bringing this movie to my attention. It's a great film. The monster design in this thing, it's awesome. If we didn't make that clear in our conversation, well, you weren't paying attention. We loved the monster in this thing. It's aquatic, it's alien, it's both. It's like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, man. It's like the best of both worlds. It's like chocolate. It's, it's great. Watch the movie if you haven't already seen it, or at least just look up the monster. It's pretty darn cool. Also, special thanks to Christopher Page. He is a podcaster, and the nice thing about recording with other podcasters is a lot of times they'll record the conversation on their side as well as kind of a backup. And this time around, we needed that backup. Christopher, you did me a solid. Thank you for backing us up here at Monster Kid Radio. Thanks to him. You guys and gals are actually going to get to hear the rest of the conversation in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio here in a couple of days. Now, Monster Kid Radio is run off of a blogger site. It's kind of a blog, so you can leave comments like you would with any other blogger site. So if you have any comments about episodes of Monster Kid Radio, you can certainly do that there. Or you can get a hold of us using that contact information that I mentioned at the top of the show. Or, again, just look for it at MonsterKidRadio.net. That's where you're also going to find a link to Beware of the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. Again, their song appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. It's the song Caught Dead from the EP of the same title. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song that I just mentioned, Cut Dead. That belongs to Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. Big thanks to them for letting us play that here on the show. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. (laughs) 